Nutter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Nutter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nailers Natter in association with the Teacher Development Trust. I just start by thanking everyone who came to see me speak at Research Ed National Conference last week. Blown away by the number of people that came to see me speak about escaping the hamster wheel of accountability and the way that we're using CPD to change culture in Blackpool. And a truly exceptional event and big congratulations to Tom and Helen for putting all that together. And it got me even more excited and ready for research at Blackpool, which is coming soon, but more on that later. So this week in uh, Nailers Natter in association with TDT, I'm in conversation with Nicole Ponsford. And Nicole describes herself as working in the corners of ed and tech. She's a teacher, an ed doctorate researcher, CEO and founder of the Gender Equality Collective. She's also a TES columnist and author of Techno Teaching. So we talk about many things in a wide-ranging interview, including the pros and cons of being an AST and how that role has never really been replaced. We discuss leading teaching and learning across the school, and we delve into the thorny issue, which is the use of technology in schools. We also look to address the disadvantage gap and some strategies that Nicole has used to do this. And then finally, we discuss the important work that Nicole is doing on gender balance in schools. So get the running shoes on, put a larger weight on the squat machine, grab the dog and the dog lead, or just sit back and relax for another Nailers Natter in association with the Teacher Development Trust, this week with Nicole Ponsford. Okay, so hello Nicole and welcome to the podcast. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for coming on right at the beginning of another busy term. So um, I'm just going to go straight into my first question. I'm going to make it slightly different this time. So I normally kind of do a journey to this point, but you started teaching round about the same time as I did. So tell us a little Mm. bit about sort of training to teach and your early career in the early 2000s and a little bit about the work you were doing at that time. Yikes. Okay. So yeah, dust off the memory a bit. Um, okay. So, uh, I had been working in advertising marketing and it's quite dramatic. It's quite a dramatic story the way I got into teaching because I had always wanted to be a teacher when I was little. I, you know, I had the little chalkboard of my sister, you know, back in the eighties and, you know, tell everyone what to do. And I thought that was what being a teacher was. And then, so I went into advertising and marketing because I'd always sort of done digital stuff like, you know, at university, I'd started, you know, I realized what a computer was at that point. And I'd always been involved with newspapers, student newspapers and things like that. And so I'd gone into advertising marketing which I really liked. And then I had a car crash and kind of did, like fast and furious style and managed to sort of spin it every which way and flip it, which uh, my eight-year-old son thinks is amazing now, but it, <laughs> living it wasn't quite so much. And it gave me time to reflect and I decided to go into teaching. And I did my PGCE. And then when I went into my sort of I started doing you know the interviews and as a sort of naive NQT I said oh do you do media and um didn't really realize that you know when you say that to a, a experienced head of department they're sort of well you can do that so I ended up starting as an NQT and also at the same time basically in my NQT year planning a media department which was a bit mad um and this was kind of pre-iPhone and iPad, you know, back in the day. Oh, yes, I remember those days, yeah. <gasps> you know, like, uh, what are they called? You know, these, um, I've got no brain at the moment. 
uh, you know, the transparency things that you'd put on oh, it. Oh, yeah, the OHPs on the OHPs. Yeah, yeah, on the OHPs. Like, we even had, like, an acronym for it. So it was all that kind of stuff going on. Um, and I set up media, and I, I, I think we didn't really realise at the secondary school I was at, which was great. You know, the head to, you know, was really into whatever we wanted to do. But I didn't realise at the time how supported I was. So there were a couple of us as NQTs. There was a, another girl who wanted to set up a, a sports course as well. And they actually gave us a head of sixth form as a mentor. So we were doing our, you know, our kind of teacher training with everyone else in the middle sort of going, you know, this is really teaching. And then we were then going off to these like head of department meetings and things at the same time and getting trained. So it was quite, quite an amazing time to sort of start, you know, sort of learning on the job and then learning like leadership at the same time. And I think that combination of teacher training and always oh, more out there kind of stayed with me. So I set up um, the media studies and in the second year we had 110 A-level students doing it. Um, which, so it was then the largest A-level subject in the school, uh, which was met with um, interest and uh, jealousy, I think, by some. And we just did really well. And we did some sort of crazy things. We painted classrooms. I painted them all turquoise blue and, you know, it was a suite. And it was at that time the National Literary Strategies was coming in. You know, everyone had nice folders of everything um, that they would refer to. And it was quite an exciting time to start, I think. Um, and I remember feeling very excited about going into teaching and the opportunities. And, you know, I wanted to do clubs. And, you know, I think having that enthusiasm and that time and that kind of drive at that point, just, you know, the school was ready to embrace anything I wanted to do so you know it was kind of like being in a sweet shop really um so yeah I don't know how it was when you started well yeah I mean I was just going to move on to the next bit because this is something that we very much do have in common so pretty quickly you were awarded AST status weren't you yeah so I started I did the department and we did some crazy things like you know the kids would say oh let's do a school trip let's go to Los Angeles miss and I was like yeah let's do it so we did and <laughs> Um, and then I had friends um, who owned a recording studio in Reading. So we took the kids there and they did blue screen work and stuff like that. And that was sort of 2003. Um, and um, we just had a blast, really. And I didn't realise, but the staff and students, which I, you know, I really, really liked, um, nominated me for a teaching award, which I, I got. I couldn't believe it. And it kind of propelled me into this weird place where I could continue writing, which is what I'd done in advertising and market. I've been sort of a copywriter as, as long as everything else. And, um, and um, I got quite a lot of attention. And um, at the teaching awards, I sat at a table with a head teacher that had won a prize as well. And I was sort of, you know, I wanted to do more and I really liked digital arts and digital subjects. And I didn't really know what to do because there was a bit of like, you know, you're young, you're, you should be a head teacher. And I thought, oh, I didn't know, I'm not really ready for that. You know, I'm still sort of in my 20s and I, I don't know. I, I, it wasn't, I didn't want to be a head teacher. I, I knew I wasn't ready for the responsibility of it. You know, I knew it was a really serious role. And the school I'd worked in, there was, you know, there was a lot of safeguarding issues. And I, I was like, I'm not quite ready to really fully do that yet. Um, so, you know, the, the AST, the Advanced Skills Teacher, um, kind of came up as an idea. But I couldn't do it at the school I was at because the local authority had enough. But the head teacher that I'd met on the table after I'd uh, been jumping around to John Bon Jovi, um, <laughs> my husband on the dance floor, she still recruited me, um, <laughs> 
we she sort of said you know you come with me you can do media from year seven to year 13 um you know I was I, I led a directorate and then I was head of school eventually there but I could do the advanced schools um AST there because it was one of the new um academy schools like old school academy schools so this is a school that had the lowest key stage two results in the country I mean the kids when I went there they'd been used to smoking at the back of a classroom and no uniform and you know it was that kind of which really excited me but the AST I felt was a really good route for me to have a leadership position still be involved in training because I'd done a lot of training Mm. sort of regionally and I I just like the flexibility it kind of offered and it it suited me I'd like that kind of outreach um working across schools which you couldn't do as much in those days um and um I yeah I really liked I was an AST in uh, three schools in the end um all very very different roles um but no, I, I, I like it. And I'm still a bit shocked that that role isn't around or people are kind of critical of it. Um, yeah, that, that, that's kind of the angle I was looking at. So, I mean, mm. I was probably an AST around about the same time as you were. And mm. mine was slightly simpler in the sense that, you know, I was working within the school that I was already there with. And we did a little bit of outreach work. But, mm. you know, it, it, it brings up a wider issue in terms of the issue of promotion out of the classroom. So you mentioned that as soon as you started, you know, to make progress, people started talking about you being, mm. you know, a head teacher. And, and it, that route isn't necessarily for everyone so you know there are lots of good things about being an AST and it's never really been a role that's been replaced no I agree and I I think it's quite a shame because you know in in those days when I was so young (laughs) um it was you know it was great because at one of the schools um there was a special needs schools and they wanted to look at GCSE English so I could go in and work with them but I still had my class classes and and they didn't lose out because Mm. I wasn't having to you know because that was my assigned time to do other things so my classes never missed out on me and I didn't miss out on them more importantly and um I don't know it it for me it 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 taught me a lot I learned a lot I worked with loads of different people I had you know I learned loads of new skills and it was also a time when I was able to then start working with businesses because I always felt working in a secondary school the the career routes were always a bit blurry and actually for the kids learning I mean I was I was doing English as well um and I was I was doing digital media and then I did film and I did a bit of ICT but I felt a lot of the schools where I worked where they were maybe um you know sort of struggling schools more um with a really mixed demographic it was hard to get those sort of aspirationals and those employment roles um, because a lot of the kids weren't having it in the home. And and historically, you know, there'd be sort of three generations that had never sort of had a job, really. So I always felt it was quite important to bring the two together because my background was, you know, I'm a council estate girl. I don't know if that comes across with what I'm, I'm talking, but, you know, I was a council estate girl and education was my way out. And I just felt, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. So, as an AST, I could do things like, you know, I had a, uh, I worked at one school and they brought in girls through Key Stage 3, but Key Stage 4 was still all boys. Um, you know, I worked in one room which had no windows, which when I was pregnant was like, it's like hell on earth, to be honest with you. All these teenage boys in the height of summer. But I managed to work with a big tech company. I think it was Sony, actually. And we started talking about them sort of mentoring. And for one of the boys who was really bright, but he was putting all his energy into the wrong things, that kind of, there was a light bulb moment. And I don't think there always is with all kids, but I think if you can get one of them, that's, you know, that's great. Um, 
So the AST role kind of offered that, I think, with the outreach. Um, and, and it kept me in the profession, I think, as well, because it was always exciting. Um, it was always kind of different and there were lots of opportunities. So, um, but I was also fortunate as well, I suppose, when I went to Surrey, um, which I think is where the idea of an AST came in, um, there was no network. And I've always been into kind of creating networks for support because I haven't known the foggiest what I'm doing. So I'm like, oh, what can I do? And if there isn't anything to help, I kind of create it. So I'd created like e-teachers, I think, in 2002, 2003 with a load of teachers because we were using technology and no one else was. And I didn't know how to be geeky with anyone else. So I kind of made it. I made friends. <laughs> I made people be in a group with me. And then you know, then as I started doing media, I then did like a regional, um, the LA, LA asked me to get a group together. So I kind of did that. And then when I went to Surrey, the ASTs had no one. So I was like, well, I'll do a network. I'll lead a network because there wasn't one. And it was just a place for ASTs to talk about the work they were doing, but also actually the difficulties in the role as well and how you were seen by maybe the rest of the people in your school. And you were kind of senior leadership or you weren't, but you were tr also working putting out fires but you also everyone's friends and it, yeah so it was you know it was quite good bringing those kind of communities together in the role too um and I was an AST of media and new technologies which was also quite new um and I, you know I've done it for sort of English too but yeah I, I think it's a shame because I think there's so many energetic people in education and I suppose that's what mats can offer if you've got a good mat and you can work across the schools mm. But I think the AST role for me, it kind of kept me in. And also, as, as I kept coming up with loads of ideas, I could see them through and then still see my kids and still work with my kids closely. So you didn't lose that edge. No, absolutely. And, and you know, further to that, you don't lose that edge in terms of when you then go in and lead in staff training, which I know is something that you did. Mm -hmm. You've still got that credibility in yeah. the sense that you're in front of pupils day in, day out. And, you know, yeah. that, that's that's something that, you know, can be a challenge when you move into senior leadership, that maybe you're mm -hmm. not in the classroom as much as you are. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm very lucky that I can do both. I mean, I'm in the classroom pretty much every day as well as mm -hmm. doing all the other stuff. So, you know, mm -hmm. when you do lead training, you can talk about, well, I tried that with year nine yesterday. Yeah, I did that with year 11 and that's quite powerful I think yeah it is and I think it helps and when you are trying to impact any kind of change or improvement or if there's any kind of conflict in a school you're quite well well placed in a staff room then because mm. you know you can go and sit at a nice table where someone brings you a cup of tea but you're also quite happy to eat Tupperware on your lap at the same time and have those kind of conversations with everyone and when I actually left teaching after having my first son what helped, I think, as being a school coach was I was kind of used to those, you know, I, I remember someone saying to me, oh, you know, as a, you know, as a coach, you go in and, you, you know, you shouldn't have to move the furniture around. That's not your role. And I was like, actually, that is my role. I'm, and I, pretty much every workshop or anything I do, I have to go and help set the tables and do it all because I, I don't know, I, I never felt I distanced myself, I suppose, from the teacher that I was when I started teaching i've always still been that same person um so yeah i think the st role you know potentially is quite helpful but i know you know a lot of schools now make their own kind of versions of it don't yeah, they so absolutely 
Okay, just moving on slightly. So something mm. that you picked up on there, you talked about you know your role in terms of technology and mm. technology. You know, can be a bit of a thorny issue in terms of you, know, you have to look on Twitter about people's reactions to you know <laughs> should you have iPads, should you not have iPads, etc. And I'm not offering opinions either way in terms mm. of what we've done in terms of research school things like that. We've looked at EES guidance reports on you know the use of, of technology in the class, mm. but. What advice would you give to listeners on how best to use technology? And, and can you tell a little bit more about the, the work that you've done in that area? Oh, yikes. Okay. Uh, so, um, well, at the moment, I've been working with Achievement Pro, and I've actually been project lead on a research, a big uh, national research for a big tech company, uh, looking at the impact for literacy. And I think what's interesting at the moment when it comes to ed tech, that what I suppose what people want the technology to do. And I find that there's loads of moving parts to that when it comes to technology in this country. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with America quite a lot. When I wrote techno teaching, it was with Dr. Julie Wood, um, whose background was with Harvard and she'd worked with Apple and Disney and PBS and stuff like that. And I started to understand what the American situation is. And that's more, you know, they have like regions of good practice where all the schools in that region will be, you know, great at doing something, which we don't really have here. So in this country, I find when it comes to technology, you know, the person in the next classroom can be completely, you know, using technology in a completely different way to you. Um, and I always think with technology, it's outcomes driven. You know, what are you trying to get out of that? Like anything you would do in a class, what are you trying to teach your kids and what are they, what are they meant to learn from it? And that's them working out is tech a tool to do that. Um, and I think part of the issue is there's so much out there. It kind of, is overwhelming but if you I don't know I've always played I've never really been trained properly in tech I've always just wanted to have a little play with it and that's kind of how I've taught myself software so I and even up to kind of like industries industry standard software I've just had a play and I think I've been confident to make mistakes and it doesn't work or you know google for help or try and go to a workshop or whatever and I think the pressures that teachers have on now and like the dazzling array of tech that's out there, it's kind of hard to know where to start. Um, I, you know, I'm an Apple teacher, but I'm also a Microsoft MIE trainer now. And I love like Apple stuff's always been my kind of go-to and it's weird because it's kind of changed. I think Um, in 2017 when kind of the Michael Gove, I'm not going to say more about that, but uh, year of coding not, came not in. Not today, anyway, in terms, no, of, I know. in terms of the recording. He's probably on his feet as we speak, actually. Oh, no, I don't. And do you know what? I've, I've had a day doing The kids went back to school today, so I've done school. So I haven't even looked at the news, and it's like, oh, I really should have today, probably. But, um, yeah, it was kind of a year of coding came in. And where I had been involved in tech in a kind of, you know, playful, digital arts, creative way, it then went more to the kind of science start, science end of technology. And I and I find at the moment there's a kind of jar. I mean, there's obviously the things that are going on with the EdTech strategy. I'm slightly involved in the EdTech 50. So I've, I do kind of see it at a national bit. And I know that the, I know that it's kind of looking at how we save time using technology, but I, I don't, for me, that's not what it's about. For me, it's about uh, making sure the 
kids are gaining skills, I suppose, and the knowledge that they need and the correct disposition towards it. And I think what has to happen first is teachers need to be the step before that. And I don't think they are still. Um, not necessarily because they don't want to be, but I think timing, funding and the right kind of training. Um, and it's something actually I'm looking at putting on an event for. I'm very interested in closing the gender, in particular, uh, digital gaps. Um, I mean, you know, women in STEM and women in tech and girls taking up tech roles. And I think I looked at Ed did a tweet um, from the TES it was like, you know, 10,000 picked up A-level computing and like 1,000 were girls. Why is this? And I think the problem we've got in schools around technology, there's so many tiny parts. I'm trying to look at helping female teachers teach girls because I think that's the way we can close the gap. I think that girls, they're not necessarily going to hear of all these women in these amazing tech roles, but they, you know, every day they see these teachers teaching technology and I, you know, I've set up things like the EdTech Collective for GC, like amazing women in technology, and they've been teaching technology for years. But, you know, even some of those that I've spoken to have sort of said, you know, I, I don't feel I'm very geeky or very techy. And, you know, and they've got, they're teaching technology, they're using technology, they're creating websites. I'm like, how much more techy do you want to be? Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think, yeah, because technology is something I could talk about forever. But, I think when it comes to tech, if you are looking at putting technology into your classroom, you've got why. Yeah. Is it because you want to use this thing that's new and, you know, it's a bells and whistles, which, you know, there's no reason you can't have that as well. You know, lessons should be fun for everyone, especially the teacher at times. Um, but but why? What What is that going to do? What is that going to bring to what you're trying to impart or the, what you're trying, you know, the kids to get from what you're doing? So, it's, yeah, why are you doing it, basically? Um, and if you have that at the forefront, that can kind of make a lot of decisions for you along the way. I think that's really interesting because, I mean, reflect at the beginning in terms of how long we've both been, been teaching now. When you think about how things have moved and, and how attitudes to technology have changed over that period of time. So, you know, I came into a world of blackboards and chalk and mm. technology was yellow or pink chalk. You know, that, that was the, yeah. the sort of sum total of technology. And then it absolutely exploded into, you know, own devices. Everyone's mm. got an iPad. But you're right. You're absolutely right. What you said, it's about what is the reason for that technology. Mm. And now we've got I don't know what it's like when, when you go into schools and, and, and look mm. at this, but it, it's mm. almost gone the other way now. So that I'm seeing younger teachers sort of <laughs> almost evangelical about not using technology. Yeah. And, and people look at me. I mean, you know, I'm a 40 odd year old man who's mm. got an iPad. I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing with it, but I'm actually, you know, I use it with Apple TV. I use mm. it as a visualizer. I use it as, you know, the, the board effectively. And they look at me as if, oh, you know, mm. I, I'm a purist now. I'm only going to write on the board. I'm only going to do notes in a book on a visualizer because I've seen yeah. it on Twitter. And actually, you know, th there could be an argument that using technology like an iPad means you can yeah. be more mobile, you can move yeah. around the room, you can take pictures of people's work. Yeah. You know, th th it's what it's exactly what you said, Nicole. It's why are you using it? Yeah, and there's, you see, for me, when I started teaching, because I started, and I started with sort of media studies, so I went in as a teacher and I was teaching film production and advertising and you know, I had kids running around with camcorders and we were doing blue screen and we were doing edit. So I started, oh God, it's like nearly 20 years ago, but I started with technology with education both together. So I've always been used to heavy tech being used because that was a subject, obviously. 
So I I do find it weird. There's there's um in terms of re- I can't remember who did it, but um, I did a piece on screen time, and it's basically they did a survey, and it's it's a Goldilocks idea. It's kind of everything in moderation, and I feel. I don't know what it is with teaching at the moment, but it just seems so extreme. Like it's all or nothing with, with everything. There's, you know, it's traditional, it's progressive, or it's technology or it's not. And I kind of think there's a little bit where, you know, just like calm down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why, why do you want to do it? And how is that going to help? Um, I know from the research I've done that um, using technology, when it comes to early years, the, I can't find any research that helps with motor skills developments of the under fives. So technology is not going to help kids with their motor skills, but it can help them building around a narrative. And it can help with early years, for example, by giving kids a voice. You know, they can record themselves. You can record them for sort of observations and things. You know, you can talk about how, you know, have a talk and communicate. So you can use tech in a kind of different way with different age groups. So iPads, for some year groups and some classes are great, also very expensive. You don't need them for everything. There's, you know, cheaper alternatives. So I always get a bit, although I love Apple stuff, I'm always a bit when I hear someone who doesn't really know what they're doing, they go, oh, we've got loads of iPads. And it's like, mm. all right, what are you going to do with them? <laughs> um, but I think, you know, it's kind of in the middle. And yes, you should teach handwriting. And yes, kids need to be able to read from a book. But yes, actually, if you look at where businesses are, and how businesses are using tech. And of those schools, one part of what we're doing is helping them to go on to beyond us. And part of that is have a job. I'm saying my words very carefully because I'm not saying that schools are to get jobs. But, you know, a small part of that. We do have to kind of be up to date with what's going out on that, you know, around. And and actually, like, the ed tech sector in this country is amazing. Um, and there's stuff that's being used by businesses that would really help teachers but there's not enough time in teaching for reflection I feel Um, and that's not a criticism on teachers I feel that's a lot in school it's you know everything goes at a six-week pace and it's quite hard to build in those times just to pause and relax like relax and what do I feel and is this working and and that's where anything and in particular technology just needs that space just to kind of right what are we doing? Why do we need it? How's it going to help? And then a little bit later, did that work? Could we done it better? Is there anything else out there? And I think that's a bit of a problem because, you know, it's known that education is one of the slowest disciplines to pick up technology still. And I don't know if it's a bit of, you know, the mixed ages. I don't know if it's timing. I don't know if it's funding. But I think those three elements don't really help us as a sector when it comes to embracing technology. Um, and I think the way around it is to get practical. Um, and and also, you know, we need to upskill the teachers. But why? Yes, make things easier for them. But actually, we need to do it to help the students in this country. Um, and I think that sometimes can get missed a little bit, which, you know, I'm doing what I can about it. No, absolutely. I don't know if you agree. I, I, yeah. No, I absolutely agree in terms of, you know, you mm. talked about the use of technology. It's the reasons why you're using it. And, you know, it's not a case of, right, Andy, I'm going to go and buy a load of iPads and then find a reason to use them. It's here's a very clear need for something that's going to enhance teaching and learning and improve outcomes for pupils. If this is technology can help that, then great. Mm. But it's got to be that way around exactly as you said. Yeah, I mean, it's a tool. I mean, that's, you know, there's no point buying really expensive 
kit if you're not going to do anything. And, you know, everyone knows that there's loads of old kits sitting in cupboards around schools. And, you know, I've been into loads. And I think at one school, I basically got them to get all the kit out. And then we looked at what we had and we sold stuff. I put it on eBay myself you know, to, you know, back in the day again, mm. to buy stuff that would actually be useful. Um, and there's things that people don't know, like at Apple, you can rent stuff off them. You don't need to buy everything. Um, we went to offices and where they were having a refresh, which means, you know, they get all new computers. We took the old computers. So I've had to be quite creative about getting technology in and, you know, and begging and, you know, that kind of thing. And I've worked in schools where we've had nothing. There was like one camera for the English department and there was meant to be, you know, BTEC and A-level and GCSE film and media. I mean, just like unbelievable, no money at all. And me bringing in my equipment for the kids to other schools where I got 15 grand to spend once on, you know, camcorders and filming equipment. And so... I don't know. There does need to be some sort of consistency, I feel. Um, and I, I feel a bit in this country, we, the tech firms are taken over and the teachers may not have quite the voice they need or get quite the appreciation they should. But I'm hoping that will change. No, absolutely. Right, moving into um, yeah. something slightly different. So a theme that we've picked up on previous podcasts has been around how guests have, have experienced maternity leave and what kind of things they've done. You know, during that so yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your experience of maternity leave and your subsequent move into freelance okay yeah okay um so um we moved down here because I'm down south on the coast and um I was one of those really lovely leadership people that came in in the January to start and then was pregnant in the February <laughs> so that went down really well um and um yeah, I left to have my son and for, you know, possibly a year uh, I'd take off and then I'd go back to my position as AST then as well. Um, but um, my son had complications and it came clear very quickly that I couldn't do all the hospital and private uh, and the NHS, all those kind of appointments. Uh, I say I because my husband and I discussed it and I was going to sort of stay with my son more. Um, that I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And being a part-time leader wasn't an option, you know, in uh, 2010 for me at that particular school. So um, I had to hand in my notice, which was pretty hard. Um, um, but it kind of the same because he had had real problems and I think I've always been well, as you sort of see, I've always tried to do more than I probably should do. I started to think about what could I do, you know, inside education, because, you know, I think once a teacher, always a teacher. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I, I went to technology, which I suppose is, is my comfort zone. Um, and I I did, did a few different things. I kind of reached out to the people and the organisations that had helped me in the past. So, where, because I'd sort of had to set up BTEC and GCSE and A-level courses from scratch, I'd gone to the websites where I'd got resources and kind of wanted to see if they wanted any of my resources. And then um, I was really, thought, it felt fortunate, but I did work hard at the same time. Uh, I'm trying to be good and not do like imposter syndrome. I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to <laughs> be what I, what I preach. Um, but I ended up... Um, then I was helping with the, the edgy sites and I did a bit for their media and then asked if they had thought about film because a lot of people were picking up film GCSE to go alongside of English at that point. And also when people started to bring um, GCSEs in at year nine more, 
yeah, which is, yeah, about 10 years ago. Um, so, and then I was asked if I'd be editor of the film site, which was amazing. So I was kind of paid to do case studies on like Blade Runner and Thor and stuff, which, yeah, which was just like, this is too good to be true. And then I got asked to help with social media sites, which is, oh yeah, fine. But I'd never been on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything. So I taught myself, uh, set up accounts for the people, then met, um, online, um, e-cadets and they were they'd had Kelly Bright who had won a teaching award for primary and they wanted a secondary teacher who had and um, I can't remember if they got in contact with me I think they got in contact with me and they asked if I'd help write a secondary curriculum for them around e-safety and I ended up doing that for about a year with them or two um, and they wanted a qualification so I trained as an arts award assessor <laughs> to do it so I did that for them and then um, I just started writing. So there was like the maternity teacher, paternity teacher. And I was really interested in, in that because I think, you know, I, I wanted to carry on teaching and learning and keep my hand in education, but I didn't know what to do. And yeah, and I kind of started doing it and that was really great and started reading there were other people, parents, you know, men and women who want to do that as well. So that was good. And then part of that, going back a bit, just trying to remember, um, Tell I've done two school runs today, can't you? Mm -hmm. So um, then I, well, no, it was on LinkedIn. A lady contacted me and said she wanted to know about media education in this country and would I have a chat? Yes. Would I Skype? And I was like, uh, yes, didn't really do it, but I pretended. And then worked out she pretended, but she was quite extraordinary. She was Dr. Julianne Wood and she was ex-Harvard um, director and we started talking and we were quite aligned in our ideas around technology. And she said, why don't we write a newsletter? I, you know, I know someone at Harvard, maybe we could write a newsletter. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, like uh, my son was quite young. And I was like, oh, my word, I'm going to write for Harvard. It's great. And I immediately got her to send me loads of Harvard merchandise. So I've got all my nice, you know, big T-shirts for Harvard. And I was like, yes, great. And she had a meeting and it turned out it was actually the person who ran the newsletter was also the editor of Harvard Educational Press. And no one would write about technology because technology was changing. And I'd always been very practical, right, how can we do it? You know, what are we going to do with the tech? As you probably picked up on, on sort of my background so far. And Julie was very academic and um, mainly early years in primary. So we kind of put our heads together and we wrote uh, a book called Techno Teacher, which I did all when my son was napping. So uh, it was all written at nap times and in the evenings. And, yeah, we wrote a book for Harvard, which is just insane. And they liked it, and they published it, which is even more insane. So, yeah, so I, I basically, I'm telling you, I became a Harvard author. Wow. <laughs> and I know. And, um, and then, yeah, and I started doing freelance, but really exciting roles all around tech. Um, and I should say as well, um, then my kind of steady job was working for Achievement for All. So Achievement for is an educational charity which focuses on the 20% of kids that are not achieving as much as they could. So they're vulnerable to disadvantage for various reasons and kind of working with schools on how to close those gaps. And it's great. So I started working with them as a coach doing primary and secondary, which was similar to that AST role of outreach, I suppose. Mm. And that leads me nicely and seamlessly mm. into the next question. So <laughs> uh, narrowing the disadvantage gap is, is a massive issue, and it, it certainly is where I'm working in Blackpool. Um, mm. So how do you go about that in your role with Achievement for All? 
Okay, well, Achievement for All, they've got um, they've got various programs and partnership programs now. But what I think very good for them but each school is very personalized and you have a coach and when I started there would be 18 visits I think a year which basically worked out as almost going in once a fortnight for half a day so I was there more than some of the staff and and it was great um and basically I would go in and work middle leaders or leadership or teachers or TAs and basically say you know Let's look who are the kids that need to achieve and let's break it down. Let's take every single kid and every single family and work out what we need to do and work out what's happening. You know, do we, how do we engage those hard to reach parents? And actually, is it a case that we're asking these families to work on the school's timetable when they've got enough on their plate? Or is it a fault that we, you know, we need to get other agencies in or do we need to tweak what we're doing or, you know, what's the background, where are we going? So all those kind of little questions, we've almost taken each child and, you know, metaphorically putting them in the middle and then working out the 360 around that child, what's going on. And that's where, you know, that that reflection I was saying about earlier is really important because, I think it's very hard. You start the term, as I think a lot of teachers have started, you know, you might have had a couple of inset days and then it's full on, isn't it? You know, the kids are in the door and it's bang, 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 go, 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 quick lunch, you know, hardly a break, keep going, keep going, you know, stuff after school, sleep, eat, repeat kind of thing. And actually, we have kids for a very short amount of time and a short amount of time that we may or may not be the chosen people in their lives to make a difference. And I think sometimes it's working out who that is. For me, I think my background really helped. You know, my mum was great and had always given me books to read. And, you know, we know, particularly up to sort of primary, the more kids read, you know, the better a multitude of things are. But I think as well is that kind of understanding that I had when I came into the profession, how how much a home does impact on your life as a young child in particular. And school is not the most important thing for kids. It might be for teachers, but it's not for kids. And I think sometimes you've, you know, you've just got to check yourself of actually, am I the teacher that's going to make a difference or is it someone else? So one of the things we would do as a coach is to make sure that every kid has a good relationship with someone in that school. Um, And although I didn't see that, in terms of what you're saying, looking at disadvantaged kids when I've been working school, when I did my first teaching role with um, the academy, we did something which was quite cool. We made every single member of staff a tutor. So site team, admin, everyone was a tutor. So there'd be your main teacher and there'd be a member of support staff that was a tutor as well. So the kids got to know everyone in the school very quickly. You know, my my second tutor she was one of the receptionists um we had um mentors that came in from the basketball teams and stuff like that so the kids would you know if a kid was late for school they would speak to someone and it might be you know the site team but that was actually their tutor as well and it was quite a magical thing because i think kids just need one sort of champion one cheerleader don't they that one reason to go into school and then everything else can happen. So I think personalisation is a key. I think looking at what's going on around the child and also sometimes as a teacher, 
realizing that you are not that one that's going to make the difference to that kid no matter what you do but you've got to look for who will and I think those are the the sort of things that can have a big effect oh definitely I think that's really interesting and I'm just writing that down it says what a a brilliant idea that is in terms of because you think of the professional development for the member of staff if it's a member of the office team or the site team and the involvement in the whole school is that that you know every every person on the staff knows every pupil in the school I mean that's fantastic yeah and I think you know like as teachers we know relationships matter but when I think when you strip down and when you've got kids who you know I mean I don't know I don't know if you know there's like like horrendous things going on at home I, I don't know if we want examples but horrendous gang like you know horrendous horrendous things going on at home which the kids brought into school with them because school was just somewhere to go in the day. They weren't there to learn, you know, some of these kids. They were there to hide sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, an awful lot going on. And actually, if you didn't have a relationship with the kids, they didn't want to know, didn't want to know anything, let alone be able to sit down to learn enough to, you know, write on an exam script, at, you know, in a couple of years. So it all boils down to relationships. And you know, in some schools you go into and, you know, sort of say, oh, you know, what about doing, you know, that mum's got three kids, you know, like I do now, three kids and she's got two young ones. She can't really come in for that time. Could you see them later or could you do a talk on the phone or what about a Skype? Or, and the schools that sort of go, oh, you know, I can't really, you know, no, we don't really do that. You just think, well, you're not, you're not going to win at this because what you're doing isn't working. You've got to see it from another point of view and you've got to go that extra mile sometimes and I think it was really brave asking all the support staff right you like you are all going to be tutors you're all going to be more involved and they all did it and they all gained loads from it but the people really gained the kids at that school as well and I don't know if it's controversial but the teachers use the same toilets as the kids because when it had been sort of a previous school a lot of things happened in unsupervised time so the fact that there was just an adult presence helped teachers ate their lunch with the kids which I used to love doing they'd either eat in my classroom with me or I'd eat in the main hall so no I didn't really get a break but that was a school that's what needed to happen and it and it did um at that school it was most improved school in the country I think in the second year um so yeah, I think if you if you've got if you want to close those gaps, you, you've just got to throw everything at them really and um, put yourself second. Mm. I mean, the personalisation is really interesting because something that's been you know done with people premium students is treating them as some kind of homogenous group, and I understand yeah. why that's the case. You know, let's take all yeah. the people premium students to this to widen their you know yeah. cultural capital or their expectations, but actually they're not a homogenous group. You know, you can have no. any kind of yeah. range in a pupil premium, anything from you know I mean, I'm thinking of an example off the top of my head, but say you know a, a, a child of a divorced couple where. The, the mum's got a great job the dad's mm. not got such a good job they live with dad so they mm. need you know and they've got all of these different experiences yeah. but actually and then you've got what i would say was a true people premium student who's, who's really disadvantaged and, and finds yeah. things difficult so what you're doing there in terms of a personalized approach is mm. definitely the way to go 
Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't like differentiating as well. I, you know, I, again, that's grouping kids together. It makes it easier. Um, it's almost as bad as splitting kids by gender. Just if you want to hook into the next thing. Well, <laughs> but, I do. Um, can, can I take yeah. that? Can I take? I'm going to take that hook because this is. I'm just, I'm just conscious of time now. And I'm looking. Yeah, at, I and, and I always say this on the podcast, but we try to keep it to you know commute length. And really, what I do want to speak to you is about gender balance. So mm. if I can move into that, so gender yeah, balance I is it? I is talk it, a lot. I've been with kids too much. Today. Today, so, no, yeah. no, don't worry, no, don't worry at all. So, as I said, gender balance is an important issue for schools, for homes, for businesses. So, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about your work with the Gender Equality Collective? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, about a year ago, I kind of uh, the short version got my head together with uh, an awesome lady called Cat Wildman who was experiencing the barriers when it because of gender. And as you can sort of hear, my background has been very much about being inclusive in schools and particularly around technology. Um, I'd never really had an issue with girls taking up the subject, but I'd never really thought why. And I think because, you know, the kids like me, I offered a range of subjects. I talked to boys and girls in the same way, you know, and and so we sort of pretty much had a 50-50 all the way through. But... um, what I also knew, uh, the other element I used to work a lot was with obviously boys and sort of literacy gap, which I think since the 1960s hasn't actually been closed, um, if you look at the research. Um, and I just don't think we're getting it right in schools. Uh, the real sort of contrast with me is um, I had twins three years ago, boy-girl twins. So I literally have like a science experiment that I have in a buggy where my little girl is pretty and my little boy is clever and strong, which I just find like incredible. Um, and so we kind of launched this idea of looking at how do we close gender gaps. And because it's such a big issue and I don't feel anyone's getting it really right it's all very much based on statistics that this is happening. Don't we know this? And don't we know that? But there wasn't really any help or any guidance or what do you do or what does it look like? So, um, the wonderful Graham Andre had put Kat and I together in a Twitter group. And then we were kind of the ones, I don't know, maybe being a bit silly, (laughs) like the sarcastic ones at the back chatting kind of thing. So we thought we better talk to each other and being techie minded, we came up with the idea for a platform um, which is actually what we're working on at the moment, which will be the GC Mark, um, which we are hoping to launch oh, maybe Easter for schools next year. But we're looking at doing the business stuff at the moment. And basically, we're looking at a way that we can get people to assess how they think they're doing, signpost them to evidence-based, practical, really easy stuff that they can do and get it right, um, and then kind of reward and celebrate them. Um so we've been working on that, but the idea of the GC when we started up, we thought we'd write a charter based on our questions and our ideas, which, well, we had 70 schools sign up in 10 days <laughs> for a pilot for what we're doing. Um, and yeah, it's kind of gone a bit nuts, really. So I've now moved my side hustle, um, and now I'm sort of looking at a GC full time. And yeah, I think, I think, teachers are aware that there are gender gaps and they aren't always really sure what to do and maybe where their unconscious bias is. I say that because I know um, that term people don't always like. Um, and, I, you know, I think diversity and inclusion is important. I think we all have our blind sides with it. Uh, I definitely have to check myself repeatedly um, and sort of seeing how I get it wrong. But 
our idea is just to make things nice and easy and engage people because we think if you talk about it first, you're more likely to sort of engage and then make, make changes maybe. And we're also a pretty positive group. So there's quite a lot of sort of name shaming and, oh, they do this and oh, how awful tag, tag people on Twitter. But we celebrate. So, you know, we're looking for the good. We're the kind of ray of sunshine because we sort of think, if you know, you're not getting it right and you don't know who to go to. We want to be those people and, and we want to help. So the GC, we run uh, Twitter chats once a month where we try and get a big range of experts together to discuss things to help others. We've got um, resources on our website. We did a best book list because got a bit annoyed with people talking about books. And through our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter groups, we managed, we've got about 260 titles and growing of picture books and chapter books and books for grown-ups on all the uh, smashing stereotypes because there's stuff out there it's not that it doesn't exist you just need to know where to find it um so yeah so and I love it I absolutely love it it's you know it's really interesting I'm now actually I've started a doctorate in it as well um because I kind of feel like I need to know what I'm talking about properly I'm not reading other people's research and um yeah, hopefully we can make a difference. But we've got, um, it sounds really cheesy, but we've got really cool people in the group. So, you know, uh, Emma Turner, who you know, uh, Graham Andre. I mean, there's too many we, to say, really. Uh, Matt Pinkett, who wrote um, with Mark, uh, Boys Don't Try. And that's, everyone seems to be really enjoying that at the moment. Um, yeah, like, you know, basically everyone I possibly admire and respect in the area have joined in because I think as a collective, we've got a bigger voice and we can kind of, I'm going to say do more damage, but kind of undo the damage, I suppose. Um, so yeah, it's brilliant. And it's, 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 everyone's been really warm and welcoming and I just hope that we can help everyone. No, brilliant. So in, in terms of just wrapping things up, um, if you can tell listeners a little bit about maybe where they can find more about you, where they can okay. find more about the stuff that you've talked about in the podcast so far. Okay. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Nicole Ponsford. Um, you can go to our website, uh, www.thegec.org. And that's kind of where we've got all our resources. It's all free. I've just done one with Emma Turner about curriculum design. It's all free. If you want to sort of work out how to do that, all the books are there. There's a video walls that are great for assemblies and stuff. Um, and then we've got the Gender Collect is on Instagram and on uh, Twitter. And don't go to my website because I haven't updated it in a billion years. But, um, and we've got a private Facebook, Parents for Equality. If, you, you know, if you're a parent and you want to join that, we've got a couple of hundred in a Facebook group. Um, and uh, I've just started writing for the TES as well, which I'm really oh, wow. nervous about. I've done a couple of articles before, but they, they want me to do a few. So I've got one out that's online um, this month. So, yeah, you can see a little bit more. We're writing about books in that, and so I've asked a few really experty people to help me with that. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of around and about and happy to ask questions. The charter on is on the uh, GEC website. Anyone can sign up for that. It's free. You're not committed to anything. It's just to show that you're committed to gender equality. So anyone could go and do that now. Uh, if not, come and follow us on Twitter and join in. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, what I'll do is I'll put links to all of that sort of stuff on the podcast intro and I'll add it to my um, basic website. I'm saying this now as I'm talking to someone who knows about technology. It's very, very basic, but it is there and it's, I'm, I am trying. So, oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, have a look at that. Listen, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate your time. And like I said, I'll add all the stuff on there and I look forward to, uh, well, certainly reading more about this in the test pretty soon. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. 
Really eye-opening interview there with Nicole, and particularly the vital work that she's doing with the Gender Equality Collective. And links to all Nicole's work will be in the show notes. Now, moving swiftly into the shameless plugs section, and as mentioned at the outset, Research Ed Blackpool tickets are going like literal hotcakes, so we've sold almost 500 tickets ahead of March's Research Ed Blackpool. So if you're umming and ahhing and thinking about coming along, then you'll need to get some soon, as we're not sure what number we're going to cap that out, whether it's 600 or 700, but either way, Get those tickets as soon as you can for a fantastic lineup. So head over to the Blackpool Research School website or the Eventbrite site for details of those. The second of the shameless plugs is that I also do some writing. So I've had articles for various publications over the years, but I've got a new article coming out on or entitled Promotion, Is It Worth It? And that's from the Royal Society of Chemistry's Education in Chemistry magazine. And that will be on their website on Monday. So I'd be keen for listeners to let me know what they think about that. Speaking of writing, and uh, my latest blog will be out today, and it is on establishing a routine with your class at the start of term. So that will be on my website, which is nailersnatter.co.uk. Okay, into next week's show, and next week we are going to have the interview I recorded over the summer with the Carpool for School Boys. So this is a fantastic interview. If you've seen their stuff and watched their videos on YouTube or on Twitter, they are a force for good in education. It's a fantastic podcast. So it's Carpool for School next week, and I'll also have Doug Lamov, Alison Peacock, Jill Berry, amongst many, many others coming up in the next few weeks. So all it leads me to say is thank you very much for listening to Naylor's Natter, and I will now leave you with this week's input from my friends and colleagues at the Teacher Development Trust. Hello, I'm David Weston, CEO of the Teacher Development Trust. In this week's segment, I want to share some research and solutions about equality, career development, and fairness. One of the areas that we evaluate in our member schools is career advancement opportunities and how fair staff feel that they are. In many schools, leaders are working hard to offer opportunities to everyone, and yet staff members think there isn't a level playing field. We often work with leaders who think they're working really hard to make processes fair and transparent, but we often uncover plenty of suspicion when we do interviews with the staff. The research behind this is really interesting. Psychologically, sense of fairness is hugely significant for morale, cooperation and work performance. And from an evolutionary point of view, it makes sense. Animals tend to feel warmer to other animals that show better cooperative behaviours and are more likely to help them survive. Now, the research here um, is very interesting. Jason Colquitt, that's C-O-L-Q-U-I-T-T, and his colleagues conducted a really interesting review of the literature in 2013. They looked at 413 scientific studies which investigated to what extent employee perceptions of justice in managerial behaviour were linked to performance in their jobs. They found there were four dimensions of justice. The first one was distribution of outcomes. So when staff uh, look at the outcomes of decisions, 
To what extent did they feel they were fair or impartially done? The next one was procedural fairness. So how do they perceive that managers are making decisions? To what extent are they consistent and accurate and unbiased? And do they consider employees' views and input? The third one is interpersonal relations. So to what extent are things being communicated in a respectful and appropriate way? And the final one, information exchange. So are, is information being given? Is it being given truthfully and in an adequate way? Now, interestingly, Colquitt found that fairness matters for all sorts of aspects of work, whether it's job satisfaction or commitment to change or trust in the organisation, but also uh, it also included um, performance in the role as well. But not only that, when people saw that leaders were being fair, they tended to be fairer themselves and show better what you would call organisational citizenship behaviours. They were more satisfied with their supervisors, and again, it came back to commitment to change. So while there's no perfect guaranteed solution to the problem, what we at TDT tend to do uh, when working with schools is through um, tackle a few different approaches at the same time. The first thing we help our schools do is more proactive advertising of advancement opportunities. So that's plenty of information about what's available, why it's available, when it's coming, and how the process will be conducted. The second thing is working with line managers to train them, whether they're middle or senior leaders, train them to be very proactive with staff, to raise the, uh, the idea of career advancement on a regular basis, help people think about what they'd like to do soon or what they'd like to do in a while and what training and support can proactively be offered to them to help them be ready for that next stage. Part of that is recognising that some people always put their hand up and put themselves forward and they might gently occasionally uh, need reminding that perhaps they're not ready yet, while others tend to really put themselves down and are very reticent to put themselves forward for things and knowing that those people might need some more proactive work. But also as an organisation, being aware of things like protected characteristics, whether gender or sexuality um, or ethnic diversity, knowing that certain people from certain backgrounds and certain characteristics tend to be less likely to put themselves forward. The next thing is, as an organisation, we encourage leaders to proactively offer support and publicly say that if you are 70% of the way ready for this role, then there will be support available, both in the lead up to it, but also once you've got the job. Being clear that you don't necessarily have to tick every single box. And finally, clarity about how decisions are made. Here's the timetable, here's the process we'll go through, here's who's doing it and how it's going to be done. So we um, work with many schools and what we tend to find is that um, the confidence in the process, the sense of fairness does rise over time and that contributes to staff feeling better listened to, better morale and generally feeling more engaged in their school. Uh, with some staff and some schools, we tend to encourage the idea of forming a working group. So that would be everyone from teaching assistants and support staff, new teachers and more experienced teachers coming together, exploring this issue, speaking to colleagues and then coming up with some recommendations, having read the research. If you'd like more information about exploring this and other professional development issues in your school, go to tdtrust.org audit. Thank mm -hmm.
Schimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. 